Welcome to The Risk Equation with Dr. Chris McGuire. This is a show constructed of conversations between myself and those taking on high risk, high pressure and high performance jobs. We talk to elite performers, offering us an insight into what it takes to succeed under the most strenuous of circumstances, engaging in candid and raw conversations with those who perhaps aren't always given the chance to share the struggles they've faced on their way to the top. Today's guest is Sam Fricker, an Australian diver who, at just 18 years old, is already well on his way toward his dream of the Olympic podium. Since he was a kid, Sam has been taking on challenge after challenge on his way to becoming Australia's best. Much like many of us, Sam's success in 2020 has been halted by COVID-19. The trials for the Olympics in Tokyo were pushed back a year, leaving Sam with another unwanted mountain to climb before even having a chance to reach his goal. A theme of the risk equation will be to gain an understanding of how Sam and some of our incredible guests get back up from their darkest, lowest points. So each episode, no matter how successful that guest is, will begin with their greatest failure. Today for Sam, this took place in Dresden, Germany. my first international event first time representing Australia and it was in Dresden Germany we'd flown over there I was competing one newest dive it was a back three and a half tuck and this new dive was my last dive so I was like you know what I'm gonna hit it for tens my coach has said to me before you're not trying to hit for tens I was like nah I kind of got carried away with it all and I went to that final for the 10 meter which is my main event and very flopped my back three and a half and basically failed my dive so from then, what we did have mainly then was my training. So we'd done the dives every day. We'd go and do the basics for the dives and all the way up. And then just relying on sticking to what you've been doing in training and trying not to do anything different. And that's where I made a mistake because I went in there and tried to do something differently and it didn't end well. So I didn't stick to my training and that's where the mistake came from. When you got out of the pool, on that occasion you know like the thing that strikes me about that moment is that not only have you you know not been able to do exactly what you've been training for over two and a half years which i'm sure you've executed hundreds of times before that day so there's the disappointment of not being able to perform at the moment when it counted but then you've got the trip home and then you've got a year's worth of training before you get another shot if you get another shot you know and that's the thing is like mentally pulling yourself out of that water and realizing with that heavy weight on your shoulders that now is the waiting game and you need to get back to the grind of it. Like to me, that's extraordinary that you were able to do that at such a young age because that's an extremely difficult thing to do. But under those circumstances in particular, so like what was it that you think allowed you to get out of that pool and then get back to a point where you were productive toward getting to where you ultimately wanted to be? Okay, well, right off the bat, it sucked. Out of everything I do, some of the hardest things I've ever had to do is pull myself back up from those low points. Like that really pushes you to grow as a person. And it really is one of the hardest things I've found I've ever had to do. So for me personally, I like to kind of sit with it for a while uh, just to 
think about what's happened. And then after I've done that, I, I like to make plans. So I'll write, I'll make video, I'll talk to myself on the video or talk to my coach and together with my coach, make the plan, work the plan. I guess when you're performing at that sort of level, it has to be built into you, doesn't it? In a certain degree, like you have to be structured about the way that you do things. It's not just a question of talent, is it? It's a question of deploying that talent consistently over and over and over again until it's just an automatic thing that you can jump off that board perfectly. 100% because at the end of the day, when you're in the Olympic final or like any of these major events, like everyone can do the dives. It's about who can do it when it matters. You get to Dresden, that dive happens. It's not what you're looking for. And you're falling back to that 15-year-old you who says, I'm going to be a gold medalist. And suddenly you're thinking, well, maybe I can't do it. You know, like I've gotten to this national event. I haven't performed where I wanted to be. And yet that self-confidence, that nugget was still there, right? Because you don't get out of that pool and say, that's it, I'm done. I've had my shot. I can't do it. You're like, let's plan again. Let's let's go back to the drawing board, you know, with the right resources we can get there. Um, that to me is extraordinary. But who was it that was reinforcing that? Was that your coach? Was that your family? Was that just coming from you? Well, of course, my coaches were never going to give up on me. So that I knew that they were there for me. Uh, and I... I was devastated and you do start to question, oh, you know, am I good enough? Like, is this, is this me? Can I do this? In, in fact, at that point, I, I looked at the guys who were winning and I was like, like that, I didn't know if it was possible uh, to see them just dive so well. It was, it was really intimidating. And I was like, well, I don't know if I can ever be that, but there's always something inside you, but no, if, if I don't give up and I keep trying, I can be. And although when you do have those big values, that, that belief, like sometimes, especially for that moment, it can get shrunken down, but through planning and yeah regain your confidence you can bring that back up and you can you can come back and achieve what you wanted you're at a point where you know the world is at your fingers but i don't think many 14 or 15 year olds are 100 percent focused on i'm going to rock up to a professional event and tell them that i'm going to be the next olympic gold medalist you know, like that to me is is unique uh, in a really special way but something inculcates that sort of confidence right like that's not arrogance that's confidence because you're willing to put in the work you know, it's not like I'm already great. I know I'm great. It's I know that I'm not great, but I'm going to be. And, and you are the guys who are going to get me there, right? Like that self-confidence, was that built in or did that come from your family or who, who gave that to you? I think self-confidence is definitely built. We're all born, I think, with the same kind of qualities. I think some things are in our DNA, like our passions and that, but I think things like self-esteem is built. And as, as a young kid, I, I, I was dyslexic and I had trouble with school. So I built good relationships with people to try and get, get through all the challenges. And I think through finding other ways to do things than just the normal way, I think that built some confidence to have, I might not be able to do it the way they think I can do it, but I can still do it. I can do it my way. I had a question from one of the people who uh, follows me on TikTok because I asked them about what sort of things they wanted to hear from you. And one of those questions really relates to this moment right here, which is, are you driven by the success or are you driven by the process? And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at this particular journey, right? Because you didn't have success at that particular event and yet you 100% committed back to the process. And so do you feel like it's the search for success which drives you or do you think it's just the process that you really enjoy pushing yourself on that day-to-day -day grind? Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's, it's became very clear through COVID because 
because through COVID, I got it all taken away. For two, like for weeks, we were out of the pool, and I realised how much I love diving. So I'm there for the for the passion of the sport. Like I love diving, so I go there for the process. But I want to win. So I think those two combined is what really makes it. Because I'm there because I want to be there, and I want to do well. And what sort of techniques and strategies did you put in place to sort of address the psychological component of the sport after that point in time? You know, that, that part of you that said, I'm going to do this as a 10, you know, on the day where it probably should have been uh, thinking more in the routine way that you would in training. And yet at that point in time in your head, that was where you needed to go to get to where you want it to be. Um, what, what changed in the way that you approached that aspect of the sport from then on? So when I got back, I went and saw sports psychologist, uh, Mike, Mike Martin, who is a, he's, a, he's really good at what he does. And he taught me some meditation, some keywords when I'm diving to keep things simple. Because I think the term KISS, keep it simple, stupid, I think it's so important. No matter how complicated things are, like when I'm diving, I think about two, two keywords with that. Like, although there might be, I might be doing four and a half flips or double somersaults. I'm thinking about two, two words normally that will make that. So keeping things simple, meditation, like quieting the mind so then you can think in that moment that you need to. And I also got into a little bit of the Wim Hof method with cold showers and all that, deal with stress and just get on with it. This is so interesting because there are a lot of people in uh, surgery who look at approaching a, uh, an operation uh, or training to perform an operation in a very similar sort of way. It's about focusing on the simple things and doing the simple things really well and visualizing how you're about to do it and then executing on that visualization. And I remember talking to one of my senior colleagues who's probably one of the uh, most experienced pediatric surgeons uh, currently working in Australia and he was saying that before he does a really big case uh, a significant oncological resection or a big abdominal procedure he spends the time when he's scrubbing which is sort of getting prepared for the sterile nature of the procedure so it lasts about five minutes worth of uh, hand washing before you actually don the, uh, the gown and gloves he spends that five minutes visualizing what he's going to do and centering himself to the task and in a way it's not dissimilar to the process of walking up to the board and centering yourself and having those trigger words it's just interesting how there's mirrors in the way that people who are doing high risk or high stress things approach a similar sort of problem the components for success and high performance are so similar in in every field although they are completely different fields I think the components for high success is is consistent among all of them, like the visualization, the awareness. And those those are things we aren't taught, I don't think, in school, which we probably should be. Visualization, because a lot of athletes, um, well, some of them don't do it. And I think it's a huge loss. I think if you're not visualizing or seeing it in your head, I think that is the number one um, component of doing a good dive. 
is seeing it up here. Is it something I talk with my coaches? It's been mentioned before, but mainly it's it's an individual thing for me. Like they, they tell me what they want and then I visualize how to do it. It's interesting, that's similar for me in surgery. Like we often don't talk about the psychological component of it. We don't talk about the way that we're individually preparing our mindset. And I guess a part of that is because it is quite a personal thing, isn't it? You know, like what works for one person may not necessarily work for another. So it's hard to generalize. Um, but nonetheless, it's a critical part of performance for a lot of people. And it's interesting to sort of break that down a little bit. And so how do you, how do you unwind? How do you get out of that zone when you're having to perform, you know, so consistently? And then you've got school in between it as well. Like, it's easy to forget that you're 18, you know, like you're doing something that's so incredible. But at the same time, you've got to deal with a lot of the normal stuff as well. You know, how do you approach that? Starting the business was super important for me for taking my mind off diving because having the company on the side was so good for me to get my mind completely off diving and focus on something else. So when I was younger, I used to struggle with this. I used to leave the pool and I'd be like thinking about diving, like trying to do better when I wasn't at the pool. But what that does is it drains me mentally and I can't dive well when I go there. So the most productive thing to do is not stress about it and not think about it. And I turn off by running the business. Tell us a bit about your business, Sam, because a lot of people listening probably won't necessarily know that not only are you an Australian level uh, diver, but uh, that you also uh, happen to run a company too. Um, So just break that down for us. So I sell eco-friendly wheat straws to all over America through Amazon and all over Australia through my website. I supply local restaurants, golf clubs and bars and I'm trying to change over from paper straws, which are great until you actually put them in your drink, to wheat straws, which don't go soggy at all. They're eco-friendly. They're biodegradable in about 30, 60 days and they're even gluten-free. So it's an obvious solution to a major problem we face. And since that plastic straw got stuck in the turtle's nose, the world has really become enraged with plastic straws. And the wheat straws are just a great solution to a international problem. And building a business up from scratch while you're doing all of this training, like that sounds like a lot of stress to me. What do your teachers think at school about all of this stuff? Like, how do, how do they approach it when, you know, like you're yeah, four hours in the morning or three hours in the morning, you're training, a couple of hours in the evening as well. You've got this business on the side and then you're attending classes as well. And I imagine trying to get some homework done and prepare for the, the exams. You know, how understanding are they? How much support do you get from the school? How does that all work? I couldn't do it without them. They're, they've been really good to me. Uh, Trinity Grammar, that's why I go to school. They just look after me so much when I miss exams because I'm away. They really help me out. The teachers are really supportive. You do some coaching as well. How have you found that experience? Like looking at your own uh, career so far and and your reflections about your learnings, um, how has it been sort of transitioning, not even transitioning really, but simultaneously uh, performing at elite level yourself and then trying to give some of those lessons to a new generation coming through? How do you approach that? From seeing my own struggles, I think it makes me more patient with the athletes. And remembering how I came through and how I was really annoying as a kid, it also makes me more tolerant of the other kids. Some of them are in year one, very young kids, between first year school and 60 year olds. I coach a really wide variety of people. And I think it it helps my diving, I think, because when I'm talking about what, what they need to do and doing the motions of everything they need to get right, It kind of really um, puts it into my brain, what I need to be doing as well. 
When you're doing the wrong thing for a long time, it's very hard to change. So the muscle memory plays a part, whether it's used good or bad. So when it's used correctly, it has really good effects. But when someone's doing the wrong thing all the time, that will have sort of very negative effects. So trying to catch those mistakes early on and turn them around. But it's, it's hard to change something that people have been doing wrong a long time. And for myself, things that I've been doing not the way I want it, has also been a struggle. And to this day, like still working on my technique, of course, to, from now to, to the day I retire, I'll be working on my technique. But just, just the small things and getting things right and trying to get them to get, to get it right. There's always gonna be those people who are gonna say, hey Sam, all right, you've been diving for a little while, you've done it to a pretty high level, but now it's time to focus on a real job. You know, or, you know, who are going to say, look, starting a business, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of work. Maybe just focus on getting through school first and then see what you can do. There's, there's always going to be that element, I suppose, you know, around you until you reach a certain point of success at which it becomes inevitable that you're going to be able to do what you say you want to do. And I'm sort of interested in how you navigated it before it got to that level. You know, like when you get to the nationals and you're competing at that level, it becomes pretty serious. And I think people will, will rally behind someone more when it becomes more serious and more recognizable as a success. But when you're leading up to that point, you know, when you're 15 and you're saying, I'm going to be an Olympic athlete, what was it that got you through those moments when you're still trying to prove to people that this was a feasible thing for you to do? For me, I was just like, this is happening. This is what I'm doing. I don't, I don't care what I run into. I'm just going to keep going. The knowledge that I was going to make it, I was going to keep going till I got there, I think is what, what got me through those times. Because if you're not sure, you're like, oh, you know, I'm just here for fun, having a good time, going to get through it. Like, and then something else comes up, that's different. But if you're like, I'm here to get where I want to go and you've got purpose behind that, I think you can back yourself. When you say that, it immediately resonates with me. Because I think that those sorts of comments that I was referring to and the people who say those sorts of things will jump on uncertainty. You know, like if you're in a position where you're questioning whether or not that's what you want to be doing or you're falling down at the first hurdle and suddenly it all seems a bit too hard and you're dragging your feet to get into training and, you know, it's someone's externally required to push you to keep going. I think that those sorts of negative comments tend to feed off that. 100%. And after that failure in Dresden, yeah, I started to really ask those questions. And it wasn't until, yeah, those two years later where I went back, that grew me so much as a person because I remember looking back and thinking that was, that was impossible. And I remember being in that stage like, and really frustrated. And you know, people are like, you're not an international diver. You know, maybe you're just you know, a national level. But once you push through that, and once you come out the other side and you have some really, really good success, I think that, that also brings huge self-confidence once you get through it. I want to talk about that event two years later a little bit because this is the part of the story that I, I love uh, because it's a combination of so much hard work. But tell me about one, how you even got to be back there again two years later because that in itself is an achievement just to front up after that experience, I think, psychologically and physically um, and within that environment. Um, but two, how a different a person were you in that event two years later too? The way I got there was it's quite it's quite kind of funny because I my coach gives me a call after training one night. He's like, Sam, I want to go back to Dresden. I was like, Oh look, nah, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> and then he was like, <laughs> Yeah, he was like, No, 
no, we're going to get a dress in. I was like, okay, fair enough. That's what we're doing. That's what he says, that's what we're doing. From that point, I was like, okay, I'm going here. And I didn't overthink it like I did last time. I just focused on every single day in training, what I had to do that day. And just tried to make the most of that day. I did more basics than I had been doing and really focused on the technique of the dive and just staying super calm and relaxed and being less affected by the things going on around me and just being more kind of settled, more in the moment and less kind of frantic and all over the place. Earlier that year, I'd learned one of the hardest dives in the world, the front four and a half. And so you're up on a 10 meter platform, you run, you jump, you go forward, you do four, one, two, three, four and a half flips. You then come out, land on your hands. You all do that within the matter of a couple of seconds. So I had this new dive behind me, which made me feel good. I was the only one in that event that was competing that dive. So that was also a bit of a confidence booster. But I just remember I was waking up. I wasn't thinking about it too much. I went and got breakfast with my friend Vlad. I'm just having a bit of a laugh. And I got to the pool and I was like, I'm going to win. I made a decision when I got there that morning. I was like, I'm, I got this. Of course, you know, doubt came in my mind, you know, all day, like small things, but I was like, no, like, just, no, you know, quiet. I got this. And just focusing on the positive, I had such a clear picture of me hitting the dive and just getting out of the pool that when I was up there doing it, it felt like it was already done. And the funny thing is, when I, the dive I'd failed two years before, I hit that dive and got more points from a single judge than I did for the whole dive. When you're learning to operate for the first time, um, it's always done under supervision. So you don't really have a huge amount of responsibility uh, when you're starting out. But whenever you're starting something new or you're doing a new technique, the adrenaline starts to surge and you're concerned about how you're going to perform. Um, your uh, entire body reacts to the stress of that situation. You know, it can make your hands shake more. You can start to sweat more. It's that, what we call an adrenergic response. Um, medically speaking and you know when you're you know is sitting in that that moment in competition you know like how do you get to a point where you don't have that visceral response because of course any sort of tenseness that you would experience which is abnormal to the regular dive is going to affect those uh, the elevation that you have how far from the board you're going you know all of those minute calculations that have to happen you know how do you get around that in a competition environment so that you're just executing what you were doing in training. I laugh with my coach. It, it, it really, also, it, it just brings me back to it. Cause the thing is like diving is an interesting sport where it's not, if you go up there and give it hundred percent, you're going to make a mistake because it's not about getting hundred percent power. It's not about getting hundred percent kick. It's about taking components of everything, the right amount and just using that right amount because too much power and you overdo it not enough and you'll, and you'll be sure. So just taking components of that and laughing with my coach is how I deal with that response. Very clearly, it, like, it disappears. One of the highest regarded qualities is not how technically good you are, though that's important, but it's about how teachable you are. 
It's about how willing you are to take on lessons, accept what you need to improve on and focus on those things and receive feedback and then build from that. That is the quality that will determine someone who's great from someone who's good, um, is their capacity to go through that loop. And I'm interested that from an Olympic point of view, do you think that it's more important in a way to be trainable than it is to be naturally talented? Um, at these sports or do you think that it has to be a combination of both or like what what factors are more important it's definitely a balancing act because when you're competing you got to go out there believing you're the best and that you can do it but then when you're in training you got to also be humble and be like all right well hey he does that damn good so i'm gonna learn how to do it like him you know <laughs> or a coach tell you you know you need to do it this way and changing it so some people are more talented than others but I think it, yeah, it comes down to coachability. So important, right? Because if you just stick to what you're doing, don't change. Well, the results aren't going to change. That's for sure. One of the things I found interesting in um, in the hospital is that there's not really a clear distinction between when you're training and when you're performing. Everything is sort of happening simultaneously, because it's not sort of like you can go to a you know spend four months rehearsing a procedure and, and a diagnosis and then. You know, on a particular day, you, you get to competition event and the real thing, you walk into the hospital, you, you perform the operation, you perform the diagnosis, you go back to the training room and you're like, that was awesome. Now let's let's learn another one. Like it doesn't, it's not like that. And so like to me, I, I really, I'm hugely inspired by people like you, Sam, you know, who do this sort of incredible training and grind almost without seeing any reward for it for a long, long time before then having to do that. And so one of the benefits of, you know, training and working simultaneously is you see the rewards and you see the improvements every day to a certain degree. You can see yourself getting better and you can see the impact that that's having on the people around you. Um, but at the same time, it also creates an interesting cognitive dissonance where you can't make those clear distinctions as easily between I'm the person who's being trained, but then I need the self-confidence to perform. It, it's harder to split the personality a lot of the time. And that's really interesting to me is sort of how do you be the humble person that you need to be to be trainable and to get better, but at the same time have the self-confidence and the belief to perform something that's intrinsically very risky and difficult at a level that you need to. Um, and threading that needle is, I think, a real challenge in some areas. Um, but I think athletes do it really, really well. Uh, but in some ways you have the benefit of, of being able to split it in that way that in some other areas of work you don't necessarily. The requirements for success are so consistent over everything for high performance. So business, school, relationships, those qualities that I learned for diving, I, I implement in every area of my life. And it has a really positive impact because I, I, I've been through those struggles in diving. So I understand phases and you have seasons and you know sometimes things aren't going well, but you just gotta keep going. So I think those lessons learned from diving really just teach you those life lessons over everything you do and i'm sure you'd find the same that those techniques you've learned from surgery you can implement everywhere in life almost to a fault sometimes you know, like i'm interested in whether or not your family ever says to you okay sam this isn't a professional event you're allowed to just relax and have some fun now for a bit when you're when you're doing uh, this sort of structured uh consistent work towards these goals all the time you know it's invigorating by sounds for you but i wonder whether or not it can be intimidating for people around you as well you know when you're being so dogged in this pursuit and so structured and, and pursuing that sort of excellence how that impacts on your relationships around you when perhaps other people 
aren't able to hold themselves to the same standards or are measuring themselves, you know, against what you're achieving at any given point in time? I think in some ways it attracts the same kind of people to you. It kind of attracts your tribe, the, the people that are doing similar things and you guys run together and go further. I, I'm very, I get along with like all my school peers very much so. So I think whether it's you surround yourself with people who are similar to you. So you all just kind of get along because you're a little bit similar or you at least have so most of my friends have really strong passions for whatever they do. I think that's, that's a really interesting reflection as well is that like is drawn to like a lot of the time. And, and when you start pursuing these sorts of things and you start directing yourself towards these sorts of goals, invariably people will come and uh, they will be drawn to you as much as you're drawn to them. And that becomes a, um, a reinforcing process over time. And I, I would be willing to bet that in 15 to 20 years time, some of your closest friends are still some of the people that you're competing with today or training with today, just because of that shared experience of pursuing excellence and those characteristics that have drawn you to each other. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Vlad, who you mentioned, or your coach and so forth, are still important people in your life at that stage. I've certainly found that even in my short 31 years, that there are people who I went to school with, you know, who inspired me, who I still keep a close relationship with because I appreciate them for who they are and what they've achieved and, and the impact that they've had on me uh, over time. Having a team is so important. More recently, I've realized how important that team is. Like from my school friends, to my, to my diving coaches, to my business relationships, the team is everything. Because people are everything. Like your friends are the most important thing. The people around you are the most important part of life because nothing's enjoyable by yourself or not as much. So for me, I've found really making sure the people I'm hanging out with make me feel good in the sense of, you know, they're uplifting, positive people, but they're also willing to tell me when I'm wrong. Like I know one of my, my good mates, Hamish, he's, he's very nice to me and we get along really well, but we also let each other know when we're not doing the best thing that we should be doing. And I think that's important. You don't want someone who just, just tells you what you want to hear. So we all like to hear, you know, nice, positive things, but your good mate will tell you when you're doing the wrong thing as well. With your family, how have they been about all of this? Like that's a lot of time commuting you back and forth between events, you know, letting you travel overseas, uh, uh, navigating the school process through all of that. What's their role been in all of this? Since I've got my license, uh, it's been easy. For yeah. The license was so important. It yeah. has changed my life. Like being able to drive is, is it's such a freedom, especially for what I do, because I leave home like 5am, come home at yeah, eight, nine, nine o'clock at night. Did your did your parents just breathe this massive sigh of relief when you passed your peas? <laughs> like, thank God, we don't have to drive Sam anymore at five o'clock in the morning every day. Oh yes, yes, yes. And that driving test was very stressful. I can tell you. You're, you're sitting there on a ten meter board and you're feeling, you know, completely calm, and you hop into the driving test. I was <laughs> the transport that driving test. Oh, I was... did you uh, did you have a chat to the instructor and be like, mate, you don't realise how important this <laughs> is to me? <laughs> no, they um. No, they're like dead silent. They, they definitely weren't up for any jokes. <laughs> I have this image of you with your like your coach sitting next to the, the car as you're about to hop in, just cracking a joke and being like, Sam, it's just like the dive, mate. Go ahead, <laughs> do your thing. I would have rather been diving. I remember thinking that actually, like, like you know, I can do this stuff, but this is scary. <laughs> Mate, I, um, I have absolutely no doubt 
that if you have faced the turmoil of the driving test, that the Olympic trials will be absolutely no hurdle at all for someone such as yourself. Uh, when at the moment is it that you're, you're going to be competing in that event to get a spot at the Olympics for Australia? I believe it's in, I think it's next June. So everything was pushed back exactly one year. So the Olympics, the Olympic trials, they'll push back a year. So it was basically just hitting the big reset button on the year for us. It's been hectic, but that's what we're striving towards at the moment. Well, mate, for next June, um, I'll certainly be watching and I hope that a lot of other people will be watching as well um, to wish you all the best uh, to get onto that Olympic team. I think we'd all be honoured to have you there uh, representing us uh, in, uh, in Japan in a year's time. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and to have a chat to you. Um, I've learned so much uh, from you and I'm always amazed at the wisdom that can come from people, regardless of their age, who are doing incredible things. Um, and thank you for taking the time to share that with me and share that with us today. Uh, I really appreciate it. No, I, I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, coming from someone with your, as a, as a doctor, that's, that's very impactful. I appreciate it. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to The Risk Equation. I really appreciate it. The conversation you're listening to now was a real pleasure for me to be involved in. Hearing about Sam's diving career, his business endeavors, and his social media was incredibly interesting. And uh, if anyone's interested in learning more about what Sam does online, uh, you can follow him on TikTok at Sam Fricker, that's Fricker with two R's, or on Instagram at Sam.Fricker. Uh, Sam mentions his business a few times throughout the show, and if you're interested in learning more about that, Google the name. Uh, it's Tazarian. It's a fantastic company doing amazing things uh, that are ecologically supporting uh, not just our country, but the rest of the world as well. And supporting Sam and supporting similar companies uh, really going to help to grow the sustainable effort even further. So that's Tessarian with a silent T. And feel free to let Sam know that you came from the Risk Equation podcast. 